Thank you, Bev, for reading that. And um, um, oh, congratulations on your recent marriage to Greg. Um, congratulations to both of you, indeed. Um, I take it, were you here last Sunday? Oh, well, so everybody knows except me. Um, so that's all right, I'm just catching up because I normally go to the 10 o'clock service, but anyway. Um, well, thanks so much. Friends, um, we're looking tonight at Philippians. Um, we've moved out of Luke and we're, we're into Philippians, so um, um, we're giving Luke a rest. We will be back to that, but um, Philippians um, is uh, a book of the Bible and we'll talk more about it um, in a moment, but let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to our hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit will open our minds to what you want to teach us tonight and make us the kind of people you want us to be in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, I want you to imagine the event, one of the events in your life that made you absolutely miserable or incredibly troubled and scared. It might have been the death of a loved friend or a family member, or a time when you or someone you loved was dangerously ill, um, when you were retrenched or faced some financial disaster, or you were accused of doing something wrong unfairly. Um, and you were aggrieved. Whatever it was, I want you to momentarily think about that time and reflect on how you felt. I'm hoping this is not triggering anything, but I'm hoping that you will reflect on how you felt. Now, at the time, it probably took over your mind. It was probably the first thing that woke you up in the morning and the last thing that you were thinking about as you eventually found sleep. Now, at that time, do you ever recall sending someone a cheery thank you letter in which you barely mentioned your problem and you focused entirely on how blessed you thought your life was? Well, that is what we are reading today, folks. The book of Philippians, in fact, was a letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail facing a death sentence. And yet he writes like this, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. And he goes, does this sound like a guy in jail? Um, it, it's so incredibly optimistic. And in fact, I think miraculously uh, optimistic. And it gives us something to think about as to what um, we might feel if we ever were in a similar miserable condition. Philippians, to me, is a masterclass in resilience and dealing with pain in our lives, and Paul experienced lots of it before um, he wrote this letter. Um, he wasn't just in a jail in Rome where he's believed to have written this letter. Prior to this, he'd been in a number of jails and faced a number of trials. He was a bit like Julian Assange. He had been in jail for years waiting for this trial. His only crime was telling people about Jesus. And because others rioted in order to shut him down, um, he was put in jail. And he could not have been more innocent. I recall one time when he was arrested in Jerusalem and he visited the city so that he could take them an aid package. He was arrested for preaching in the temple a mere seven days after he arrived. And the Roman jailers were about to flog him again when he said, stop, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm entitled to a fair trial. Well, he got one 
But boy, did it take some time and pain to get it. First, he was taken to another city called Caesarea, where he met a Roman official called Felix, a town which was in Judea, and he had a hearing. But far from listening to him, Governor Felix kept Paul in jail, waiting for further um, hearings for uh, more than two years. In fact, Felix had been replaced before Paul appeared in court again and had the opportunity to be heard. And then he was on a ship bound for Rome, taking months. Now, this is beginning to sound a bit like one of those stories you tell at the pubs that just gets worse and worse and worse, because on the way, the ship in which he was travelling was struck by a storm and it was completely wrecked. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 27, how Paul cleverly saved not only himself from being drowned and killed, he saved the crew of sailors as well. And after a short stay in Malta, um, and that was no holiday, um, while he was waiting for a ship, Paul finally arrived in Rome to be jailed and tied up again. To say the very least, this was something of an adventure for Paul. He had every reason to feel hard done by. But here he is, instead of complaining and expressing his bitterness, he's writing a cheery thank you note to his friends in Philippi. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am in trouble and feeling miserable, like the sort of things that I described earlier, my mind is not on the, on the, on the mind of praying for other people with joy and counting my blessings. I usually want to spread the misery around and share it with everyone as to how miserable I feel. Paul sets us an amazing example that we can all follow. But more than that, um, he, uh, he, as I said, he tells us how we might feel the same as he does. Now, um, um, sometimes I've been asked to preach on some very difficult or obscure passages from the Bible. Uh, but this time, the challenge is very different. Um, if you read the book of Philippians, it's so accessible. It just leaps off the page at you barely need to explain it. Um, it's almost like Philippians is a sermon which preaches itself. It's very hard to add something to what appears to be bleeding obvious. So I think the best thing I can do is to make you appreciate the depth of what you're reading by telling you a little more about its background. Um, first of all, as I said, it's a thank you note. And as we've already said, Paul wrote this letter from a jail, probably either in Rome, or there is a chance he wrote it while he was en route to Rome in Ephesus. He knew the Philippians well, because he had visited them 10 years earlier. Paul visited the Greek-speaking city of Philippi um, with a couple of his friends, Timothy, um, and whose name appears at the beginning of this letter, and another man called Silas. Now, Philippi was a pretty important town. It had the privilege, even though it was a Greek city, that everyone who was born in it automatically became a Roman citizen. Uh, but they were not in the city for very long. Um, and you can read all about this in Acts chapter 16. But boy, was it a memorable trip. When they first arrived, they spoke to some women, believers, and a particular woman called Lydia. She was converted and all of her household were baptised afterwards. Um, Paul and his friends stayed in the, on in the city for a few more days doing speaking engagements. And while they were preaching, they were being harassed by a woman slave who was also had this sidekick job of being a fortune teller. And the woman made a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. But when she encountered Paul and Silas, she would stand outside their meetings and shout over the top of them. 
Um, and whatever she, what she was actually shouting was quite encouraging. Even though she was possessed by a demon, it was saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you how to be saved. But Paul found this pretty irritating, trying to be heard over her noise. So we are told, he turned around and said to the spirit who had possessed her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And it did. And, but also, what also went was her capacity to tell fortunes. And when her owners realised that Paul had just shut down their very rich cash cow, they started a riot. That resulted in the usual outcome. Paul and Silas were beaten up by the crowd. And after that, they were arrested. And then the arresting police also gave them a flogging. And after that, they were tied up and put into prison. But that was not all. That night, an earthquake occurred and the prison walls came down. The doors flew open and the man in charge of the jail thought he was going to be in big trouble because all of his prisoners appeared to have escaped. And just as he was about to commit suicide with his own sword, Paul and Silas chirped up, don't do that, we're still here. And the jailer was so grateful that he not only took Paul and Silas to his home and he fed them and he fixed up their injuries, he also became converted to Christ himself. He and all of his household were baptised. Sadly, this really happy story wasn't going to continue. Paul and Silas still had to get on the next available ship and get out of town. But clearly, they were not forgotten. And it appears that Paul continued to have contact with the Philippians for many years after that. When the Philippians heard 10 years later that Paul was in trouble and in jail again for pretty much the same reason, they decided to raise some money and send it to him. Um, and they also sent a man with it, a man called Epaphroditus, who has what's got to be the coolest name in the Bible. It translates apparently into English, good looking. I'd love a name like that. Um, but anyway, I, uh, they sent Epaphroditus to make sure that Paul was decently looked after with food, warm clothes, and probably money to bribe the guards into making sure that his life was not too tough. So the letter to Philippians was born. A thank you note went back to his friends. But as we all know, Paul was hardly the kind of person to just say thanks. He attached a couple of short sermons as well. That's probably enough of the story behind its book. So now we probably ought to get on to the text itself. Now you might notice that Paul opens his letter to the Philippians, calling them holy ones. He addresses his letter like this. He says to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. The word for holy ones is sometimes translated into our English language as the word saints. Interesting enough, you know, the word Christian is never used in the Bible. It was a nickname, a term of abuse, in fact, given to Christians, which we eventually took the teeth out of and adopted for ourselves. But uh, Paul called the people who followed Jesus believers, or he called them saints. And the Bible reports no such thing as special people called saints who had superpowers because of their super holy behaviour. Saints or holy ones is a title that we can all claim. Of course, not because we're actually saints in the way the word is usually used. We're saints because we have been made holy in God's sight by the word work of Jesus himself. And our journey to becoming holy only starts when we first believe in Jesus. Of course, becoming actually holy is a process, a miraculous process that occurs over time and is finished before the day of, uh, of, uh, of judgment. But like Paul, 
We need to be positive in believing that our powerful God plans to complete this process of making us holy and up to the point, in fact, up to the point of perfection. We should note that Paul says he's confident about that. In verse 6, he writes, he is confident that God who has begun this work in us will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. That's, of course, Judgment Day itself. Now, this confidence Paul talks about is not arrogance, friends. It's conviction. Early in my Christian journey, when I was just a teenager, I remember the relief I felt when someone explained to me that to believe anything less than I had been fully forgiven through the work of Christ was not, um, was not pride. And it wasn't humility to believe that somehow I was flawed. It was, in fact, doubting the power of God to save me. It was underestimating the power of the cross to believe that I was anything other than completely forgiven. Paul's faith in God was so strong that he couldn't just write to the Philippians in this way. Had he been alive, he could have written to us in exactly the same way. He could have said to the holy people at St. John's, I am confident of this, that he who has begun a good work on you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, we should never, ever underestimate the power of God in this regard. This is one of the reasons, of course, that Paul could be so darn cheerful when um, he was having such a miserable life for so long. To him, the most important thing in the world was spreading the gospel, and he was utterly convinced that he would be saved and that the people he was speaking to and who accepted the message would also be saved. And he was grateful because of it. The most thing that gave him the most joy in life. This letter is written by a man whose heart literally beats to spread the gospel. In verses 7 and 8, he says this, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, well, you might say, Paul's a great example, but we could never be like that. Well, my friends, the message of Philippians is that you can. He doesn't demonstrate this just to brag about it. He demonstrates it because it's a joy that we can all feel too. And uh, before you write Paul off as some sort of unapproachable saint who was incredibly well-educated and a dynamic leader and so on and had a privileged upbringing, um, we need to remember something else about the Apostle Paul. Well, it was very true that he was lucky enough to be born in the city of Tarsus, where he, like the Philippians, became a citizen of Rome. He also had a great education at the feet of a very famous Jewish teacher called Gamaliel. Paul was also a tradie. When Paul visited the city of Ephesus to preach there, it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty early church and uh, they had a lot to contend with, so Paul didn't ask them to support him, he went back to his old trade of tent making to make a buck or two uh, to support himself. Now, in those days, saying you're a tent maker was basically saying you're a builder because people lived in tents. They weren't something you just went camping in. They were things people lived in. And in those days, tents weren't made of some nice lightweight nylon or canvas. They were made of leather. And you didn't go to Spotlight and get a few metres of it from a roll before you made your tent. To make leather, you literally ripped the skin off animals and soaked the skins in urine. 
Tent making was by no stretch of the imagination some kind of clean office work. Paul knew the meaning of hard and dirty work. So I hope in sharing that aspect of Paul's life with you, it makes you understand that what Paul is talking about is much more accessible than you think. Paul describes what he wanted to happen to each individual and expected to happen to each individual in Philippi. In verses 9 to 11, he says this, and this was, of course, our verse of the day. He wanted them to abound more and more in love. He wanted them to have more and more knowledge. He wanted them to know, to be able to exercise excellent judgment. And he wanted them to be filled with the spirit of righteousness, which is a fancy way of saying he wanted them to live in a way that they would look and sound just like Christ himself. So he wanted them, of course, he gives them a very clear picture of what the end product will look like. And then he starts the process off by praying to God that this is going to happen. In verse nine, he says, this is my prayer. Progress in our faith starts by praying for it, friends. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to support each other in prayer. It's not, this miracle is not going to happen without asking God. Um, it's not a case of trying to do as hard as you can all on your own. What I really like about this passage is that Paul uses this expression, I feel I have you in my heart. Um, there are certainly times when I've prayed for people in our church and I've had them in my heart. Usually it's when they're seriously ill. And I've had them where I've, I've, I've held their worry almost as if it was my own and it would hang around on my mind. I'd pray for them during the day. I'd sometimes even wake at the night and find myself praying for them. I'm guessing that's the kind of commitment that Paul was talking about when he said, I have you in my heart. Now, I've felt that a few times in my life, not very often. Paul, it seems, did this continuously for the people in Philippi. I'm inspired by what Paul says, and frankly, it makes me want to do that more. I hope it does for you. Now, um, then he also says he wants them to grow in knowledge. Knowledge is an important part of growing to be more like Christ. Now, I'm sure when you think of knowledge, you think of study and books and lots of that stuff. But friends, in the days of Philippi, most of the people who went to church didn't read, much less study um, books and read commentaries and things. Um, they had things read to them, had to remember them. Now, sometimes I think it just means opening yourself up to what other people in our church have to share. Listening to people is a very important way of getting knowledge. Hearing their issues and the problems that they share and experiencing their victories is all part of gaining knowledge. We learn from other people what we've been blessed by in that sometimes we've avoided problems that they're facing or we learn from their mistakes as to how we might avoid mistakes in the future, or we just come to appreciate how much God can bless other people and change them. These are also knowledge which gives us a godly perspective. So don't just think of knowledge as something that's about, um, it's, it's just about studying books. It's about learning from your experience and listening to others. Finally, I'm very motivated by what Paul said that we should be able to discern as to what is best. Some translators um, express this, uh, this particular verse as approving what is excellent. Friends, I don't know about you, excellence means striving for what's the very best and not being satisfied with being just adequate. 
And I'll confess that sometimes in my Christian life, I'm perfectly happy with being adequate. Friends, we're meant to find what is excellent, the best judgment. And sometimes we do allow the good to be the enemy of the best. Let's go back to Paul's example of being optimistic about what can do when we have reason to be depressed. Let's face it, when we're tested by circumstances, we do not always act in the way that he did. But there's no need to beat ourselves up about this, friends. That's not what striving for excellence means. It's not like you're in the gym and you fail and you're sort of meant to feel painful about it. No, it's about just acknowledging that we haven't made the best and that we really should aim to be perfect. And we start again confident that one day God will enable us to nail it, even if it's the day of judgment. Now, a final reflection I'd make on this passage is that Paul is in good company. Christianity is, uh, is not a faith which we are meant to live out on our own singly. And there couldn't be a more relevant reflection to make in a time when we've all been disrupted in coming to church. Now, I know I'm speaking to the converted. You're all here. But I hope that others are also understanding the most important place for us to be at any time is making sure that we're coming at least once a week to church to meet with our friends. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, we are all part of this. We work together with Paul, even though they didn't see him. He said, you're my partners. As he was either in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, he says, all of you sharing God's grace with me. This is a partnership, friends. It uses a Greek word called koinonia, which I won't explain, but it's used a lot in the New Testament because, in fact, um, um, our faith is meant to be a community business in which we support each other. We pray for each other. We back each other up. We support each other when we have needs. That is, the, that is what it's meaning. To, that's what we're meant to do. It's an important part of being a Christian, and we shouldn't avoid it. So, friends, um, it's important to know that this is, a, uh, this is in fact, a, um, a, a, a task we face not alone, but in the company of others. And, of course, as people will tell you later on, as they preach on Philippians, with a great deal of help from God himself. So, friends, what I've suggested to us in summary is that this book is ought to... And I, look, I would set you a piece of homework. I know ministers, do, uh, preachers don't often do this, but I'd like to do this for you. Would you undertake that during the course of this weekend that you read the book of Philippians from top to bottom? It takes about 15 minutes. It's not a long effort. But that will open up to you when you think about the circumstances in which this book was written and then just read all the delightful optimism and blessing that's all the way through it. Um, you will, I think, be very, very moved and inspired too to follow in the example of Paul. But what Paul says to us is it begins with a life of prayer. It includes having a passion for the gospel. It includes having confidence in what God can do right up until the end. Despite whatever testing, temporary hardship we face, we have to understand that God is in front of us and is going to complete this regardless of the troubles that we face right now. It involves growing in knowledge and becoming more teachable, being prepared to listen to others and learn from them. And of course, it means growing in love. And of course, it also means seeking excellence. We shouldn't be satisfied with second best. And also important is that we need to be in good company and support each other um, in this uh, journey towards um, eventual holiness that God is going to bring to fruition in all of us. Now, I hope 
like you, that that makes you feel um, more confident, and I hope that it inspires you to do better, which is what the whole um, book of uh, Philippians was all about. And I certainly ask you to uh, undertake the exercise of reading it. It's been a pleasure sharing it with you. Thank you for listening to me. Um, I hope that this blesses you during the course of the week. Thanks so much.